from chapter 3, verse 14, and the second one will be from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear it before him. And for the second verse, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every, every work into judgment including every secret, secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, good morning. This past week marked a number of occasions. Uh, first of all, it was the completion of the sixth full year that my family and I have been with the congregation here. I cannot believe that six years have passed already, uh, but uh, I feel that, uh, that there is still room for my growth and my family's and your growth, and uh, I want to do that together with you as long as we see fit and God wills. Uh, I won't tell you how old I am now, but when we came, we were welcomed with a cake to celebrate my 39th birthday for the second year. So... Uh, uh, last week also was um, the close of another VBS, Vacation Bible School. And uh, the energy was high. The theme was really good. Classes were good from the ones I was able to, to participate in or over here. The moods were good. The work was excellent. And it seemed that the children really enjoyed it. Now, we got rained out Friday night on picnic night, and uh, this was our, is our rescheduled day today uh, after services. Uh, hopefully, there won't be mud wrestling and, and uh, slinging going on out there. Hopefully, there's enough dry ground to, to enjoy some good fellowship. But I know that's really important um, to all of us, Vacation Bible School, really. But I do remember some pretty special days in Wadsworth, Ohio, sitting out in the grass with others my age, at age four or five. I, I don't remember how early this memory goes back, but I vividly remember the crafts. I remember the red punch. It was red. Had to be, right? So the church was scriptural. And uh, the cookies were, were chocolate chip. Always had some chocolate chip cookies in there. It's just funny how those things have stayed with us over the years. Those of us who insist on the red punch are those who remember the red punch, like me, right? So um, it was a great week that way. It was a landmark week for the United States of America in, in the court decision that was handed down from the highest court in the land. And uh, it was a week, a day in particular, that ought to drive us soberly into further devotion in the Word of God, and to be able to sing, Sweet will of God, still fold me closer till I'm wholly lost in Thee. We need to be ever mindful. That may well have changed some things for us. We need to buckle down where perhaps we have been too silent in the past. We need to be willing and know how to speak in our day and age, the gospel of Christ. It also marked a week where we reached the halfway point of our readings for the year. Uh, and so we're reading through, and wouldn't you know, we come to this 
one named Solomon. And we read about his life more than most of the kings that we have record of. We read a lot, of, a lot about the first three, Saul and David and Solomon. We get some juicy details in Solomon's life that we want to, to be able to take a look at for our own purposes. So the sermon today is going to be kind of a part one, part two in one sermon. The first half of it, I'd like to look with you at how Solomon is actually a type of the coming Christ, the Christ of God who will come and save men from their sins. And there are various things about Solomon that typify Christ. Secondly, we're going to look at how Solomon typified men, or as some of you women might say, how he was a typical man. And um, in fact, uh, what we can learn from his mistakes as he rode the roller coaster of life and made many good decisions and many bad decisions and how it all ended up has a happy ending has a happy ending I will say that uh, he comes around but let's take a look a little bit into his journey and uh, let's first note that of all the people in the Bible and of all the wealth there, there doesn't seem to be anyone that is set forth as greater than Solomon in his glory just just well-rounded glory in all regards early on at the onset of his kingship. As, as David, the great king of Israel, the, the shepherd king, the hero of the people, as he passes on, he passes the torch to his son, and he says, show yourself a man by obeying all the commandments of the Lord. Can you picture that? The great warrior on his dying bed saying, you want to be a real man? He doesn't say sharpen his physical sword. He said, you better sharpen your spiritual sword. That's how you're going to do this. And so Solomon takes that energy and he brings it into his kingship. His rise to greatness began, though, when he came before God with a heart prepared for God. And God was pleased with him. It says, the Bible says God loved him. The Bible also says that Solomon loved God. How heartwarming. <laughs> How heartwarming. And God said even this reminds you of something out of a genie movie. He came to him at night in a dream, but in reality, as God does, appears to him in the night and says, Ask, what shall I give you? Who else has he ever done that with except his own son? But can you imagine that? Solomon, it seems like, was, was ready to answer the question. He could have answered, I, I, want, I want great wealth beyond that which my father had. I, I, want, I want great success, militarily speaking. These people on our borders that we, and within that we did not drive out, let, let me drive those people from the presence of your people so that we may have peace and that your will may... Extend my borders. He was so humbled by that, he said, how can I rule this great nation of yours except I have wisdom? And that pleased God. That pleased God. God granted him wisdom. He granted it in a way that Solomon didn't have to study for it. He received it. He received the wisdom of God in his human body, in his mind. His mind was illuminated in all things, life and godliness. So that 
all the kings and queens of the earth not only feared him, but they longed to meet him. They wanted to learn from him, and they were greatly influenced by him. And they admired him. And so in many ways, he typifies the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's typical of Christ. He's typical of man. Let's begin to take a look at how he might typify Christ. He fulfills the first part of this dual prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, where if you remember, God promised to mankind through Eve, someone who would come and overthrow the power of Satan to deceive and to destroy and to separate man from God. Then he narrowed it down by choosing a man named Abraham, a Syrian. Abraham was actually a Syrian from across the river. The word Hebrew means from across the river, from afar. And that's why Pharaoh down in Egypt called him the Hebrew and the Hebrews. They were those from clear across the Euphrates in Mesopotamia. Remember, that's where he came from Ur, and God narrowed it down to Abraham. So I'm going to work with this man of faith to begin to bring about the one who is going to embody a human body, my son, and will save the world. Then it comes time over centuries that he comes to David through the prophet Nathan and says, David, this one whom I'm going to call my son, and he'll call me his father, and he'll build a house for me, he's going to come from your body. And so David realizes, wow, now he's narrowed it down from Abraham through Judah, actually, uh, which I don't lay enough emphasis on sometimes, but I want you to remember the big three, Abraham, David, and Christ, Matthew 1, 1. And, but through Judah and down to the family of David. Now the promise lingers with him, and he says, your son will build me a house. Now there's an immediate fulfillment, and there's a future fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment is found in Solomon. Solomon rises up to greatness, and the first thing on his agenda, other than the worship and unity of the people and establishing his kingdom, eradicating some of the evil men who still were a threat from within. The first thing on his positive agenda, you might say, his agenda of progress, was to build God a temple. Boy, he didn't hold anything back. He went to his friend Hiram in Tyre, and he said, I need your help. I need some of your good forestry sent down here. I need some of those cedars that you're known for up there to be sent. And I'd like your master craftsman to borrow him for a little while. His name was Hiram. Hiram, Hiram and Hiram. And his master craftsman came down and gave him the years required to build this temple, and Solomon didn't hold anything back. And so the first thing about Solomon that we'll see is that he uh, had this wisdom of God to embark upon some of these things. And all the kings and queens of the earth sought him. And uh, he expounded openly on the sciences, all things nature. He could explain the birds, the bees, literally, physically, spiritually. He could explain um, uh, how the universe worked and the ecology of the universe. And people were just in awe of that. They came from all over the world to hear that. He could explain the ways of God to men. Don't you figure that that's what he brought them to by sharing things about the world and then bringing them into an understanding of the one true God? Hiram, the king of Tyre, said, God loves Israel. That's why he made you king. 
It's obvious that He loves His people since you're the king. So he was flattered by God's king. Yet in all of Scripture, there is not one given that was greater in wisdom than Solomon except Jesus Christ. Jesus was sought by the wise men whom the kings sought. The king sought the wise man Solomon. Who do wise men seek? From his birth. Think of it. From his birth, wise men came from the east in droves perhaps, not just three. Probably in droves and others came to meet this one who would be king of kings like Solomon was. I have preachers in my profession that I call a preacher's preacher. One who I can look to and go to to learn from concerning this vocation. Kings of the earth had a king's king in Solomon. But in Jesus Christ, we have a king for all kings, a wise man for all seeking wisdom. We have a Lord for all who need a master who will tell them truth and guide them and teach them the way of God. Only one that outdid Solomon. His wealth, oh boy, there were none like him before or since, the Bible says again about his wealth. Maybe in all the world, we just really don't have a way to know the fullest extent of his wealth, but we have a pretty good description of it in the Scriptures. His annual revenue in gold alone, in gold alone, was 666 talents a year. That's 971,250 ounces. At today's gold price of $1,173 per ounce, that is $1.14 billion a year in gold alone, gifted to him. This does not include the gold that was brought to him through his merchants and traders. This does not include the gold that was tributed to him from his subject kingdoms, which were subject from the time of David. This is just gold, not silver. This does not include the collection of treasuries that kings and queens of the earth were sharing from their personal collections. You've seen perhaps the movie National Treasure, and when they finally get down to that thing, and you can't wait for it, hardly you see it. And they, and they do give you a historical glimpse into the types of things that have been lost over time that we're searching for. It was pretty fascinating, actually. They walk you through what the treasure house was uh, to, be, to be found. And uh, Solomon was receiving these types of gifts, stuff that we can only see in museums, collector's items. They were giving him of their personal treasury out of respect. His mountain home was over 11,000 square feet with 45-foot ceilings. That's assuming it was only one floor. If it was two, floor, two floors, it was 22,000 square feet. If it was three, it was more. It could have been as high as four stories, right? But we only have the parameters, the dimensions of the one ground floor. 
That's big enough, 11,000 square feet. That was his palace in the forests of Ephraim, out in the woods in Ephraim. And he had one in Jerusalem as well. And so his wealth was tremendous. He had flocks and herds out on the countrysides in abundance that were his own. He rose up his own naval force, something relatively new still in history as far as raising up a fleet of ships. He had merchant ships also that would travel as far as Spain, it says. And I imagine they stopped in all those trade cities along the southern coast of Asia then and Europe and maybe came back along the coast of North Africa. One of the reasons that may be possible is because they brought him treasures from all over the world and they threw in apes and monkeys just for kicks. <laughs> First Kings 11 says apes and monkeys too. Had his own personal zoo. He could walk out and see his apes and monkeys and walk through his vineyards, his fruit orchards, his flower gardens, all interspersed and interlaced with man-made water pools, giant water gardens. We like the ones that are just ever so small, maybe out on the patio. I think everybody would like one of those things at least, right? Maybe you've had to clean them a few too many times and you're trying to get rid of yours, I don't know, but we, we all like those. I like to sit by them and just nice sound, etc. And he had acres of these things. He could call, depending upon his mood, for male and female singers, dancers, musicians, and have his own shows put on any time he wanted. Unknown before him and after him was that kind of wealth. So much so that the Queen of Sheba, which is located in south-central Africa, from somewhere in the region of modern Ethiopia, comes this queen from a long distance, from the same region as the Ethiopian eunuch later in Acts, is called an Ethiopian. She comes all the way because she's heard about him, and she says, no way. I mean, this can't be real. I'm making the trip. And when she met him, and she heard him, and saw his wealth, she said, I haven't heard the half of it. They didn't tell me everything. She was blown away by his riches. There is only one who has ever overshadowed the wealth of Solomon. And that is Christ Jesus, who came here and went through life with nothing to lay his head on and not even a change of clothes, but he came to possess that which Solomon could not. He came to possess that which men have no business trying to take, nor does the devil. He came to possess, to reclaim for Himself rightful ownership of our souls. He came to reclaim the souls of men. That's wealth beyond Solomon's wealth. His work... He enlisted 153,500 men of those of the Canaanites whom they did not drive out from the land. He said, well, I'm going to put them to work. He enlisted 30,000 only of Israel into this hard labor of which they rose up against his son when Rehoboam came to the throne. But he put him to work on the temple. He held nothing back. 
The temple in dimension was not as large as this room, but everything in it was cedar overlaid with gold. If you can imagine walking into a gold room, gold, everything is gold, some bronze. It's a tremendous sight to see. Beautiful curtain in the back separating this room of service for the priests. The incense that was continually burnt, which we learn later in the Scriptures, represents or typifies our prayers ever going up to God. The incense burning, the showbread, which we have typified um, there toward this bread on this table, on golden tables, one representing each of the tribes of Israel. But behind that curtain, you could see the poles coming out the Bible says, on each side of the curtain, just enough that you could see the poles used to carry the Ark of the Covenant, which stayed hidden to all behind that curtain except the high priest who went in once a year. And when he walked in, and I never realized it in my studies of this before, when you walked in, you walked in under the wings of those cherubim. The wings touched wall to wall. 60 feet. The wings touched wall to wall and the tips of the other wing in the middle, and it, they overshadowed the ark. Huge. I always had in my mind pictured these little cherubim things mounted up on the side somehow. The whole room was filled with those things. And that is where God came in His mercy and met the people. Solomon set all this to his work and did not cease until it was finished, and there was nothing like it among even all of the idol gods of Canaan and across the world that is described like this. Nearly, nearly describes the beauty which it typified in the body of Christ. I said, imagine walking into that room of gold God said through the Apostle Paul, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the, of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together, listen closely to this, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. When, when we come into the midst of this assembly, block out these walls. God sees gold overlaid beauty. And He comes in and says, these are My people. They're golden to Me. We still say that, don't we? Something's golden. God comes into our midst in such a beautiful setting. He wanted to typify that in the temple. And I should add, woe to anyone who defiles the temple. Paul said in his Corinthian letter, do you not know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that God is dwelling in this body? He is among us where we gather together, as he said. And if anyone defiles the temple, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. His kingdom 
finally reached the extent of the borders to which God had promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when he said, get out of this land and go to a country I'll show you. And he took him there and he came to Shechem and he said, lift up your eyes, look left, right, front, back, north, south, east, west, far and wide. Look out at the ocean you can see back there and across the valley. I'm going to give all this to your descendants. From the river of Egypt to the great river, not until Solomon does the extent of the borders actually reach river to river. Finally, the land promise is fulfilled. Oh yes, they came into the land. But it's finally fulfilled here. And yet, it didn't stretch from one end of the earth to the other. But in the days of Tiberius Caesar of the Roman Empire, one cast a longer shadow than either Solomon or Tiberius of Rome where his kingdom would not have physical boundaries, but it would extend to all the globe. And since you are the temple of God that he dwells in, wherever you go is where the boundaries of that kingdom are. And he has his people all over the world, doesn't he? All over the world. I love that. His kingdom literally encompasses the globe. And therefore, he fulfilled that prophecy of Daniel where he said this kingdom will break in pieces and consume the other kingdoms. It'll work its way through the kingdoms as this message of the gospel spreads to men who will receive it. And where they receive it, there I'll be found. In that temple of their body, there I will dwell. And there will be my kingdom represented in that place. And we need to represent His kingdom here. Craig mentioned how nice it was to come back to the comforts and freedom that we have in America to be able to rise up from your bed or not and worship our God or not. But we have that freedom. But the world needs to see a, a holy temple in the Lord right now. And we need to see a wise, they need to see a wise people following a wise God. Though Solomon typified Christ and his kingdom, he was still just a man. And because of that, God required him to possess character able to handle such gifts. And he had that character. He had that ability. But maintaining that great character required some great tests. And so Solomon, being typical of men, had to undergo some tests. But he began faithful in his early life. As I mentioned, he loved the Lord, eradicated the evildoers from his kingdom, those who would rise up and threaten God's plan. And that's how he saw it, as God's plan. And he led one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible. If you want to read a wonderful prayer, if you say, well, I'm not one who really knows how to pray, there are a number of places you can go in Scripture and learn the language of prayer, get down into the hearts of the one who's petitioning God. Solomon's is definitely one. In 2 Chronicles 5 and 6, you can find it. It's tremendous. You, you can see the depths of his heart. Somewhere along the way, he lost his way though, only in the Kings, chapter 11, is this recorded. The chronicler kind of shuts it off with his greatness and moves on to Rehoboam. But the Kings slows down and records his midlife crisis, as we might want to call it. And in the book of Ecclesiastes only do we read of his late life reflections. Now the Bible says in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon when he was old, 
departed from the Lord. It explains how he did that. In fact, the first word of 1 Kings 11 is one of those words. We've called it to your attention that when you come to it in the Bible, stop and really pay close attention. First word in the chapter, but. But. Solomon loved many foreign women. And he ran into this problem that he let get out of control. It seems, from my study, you correct me if I'm wrong, once in a while I throw one of these out here for you to look deeper into something that I didn't take the time to do yet. But it seems to me that he was married to Pharaoh's daughter alone for perhaps the first 20 years of his 40-year reign. I don't read, I don't find anything about any other women. And here when he's older, this thing begins. It says that when he completed the temple in his palace, 20 years had passed of his reign, and he moved Pharaoh's daughter from his palace in Jerusalem out to that forest palace. It doesn't say anything about any other women at all. And then it says when he's older, he develops this problem of, of desiring foreign women. Over the next 20 years then, these delights of the sons of men, as he recalls them in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's his reference to these women. The delights of the sons of men. He multiplied them in marriages. 700 wives, comma, princesses, comma, and 300 concubines. It's over a thousand women. Do you know that there are just over a thousand weeks in 20 years? Now think about this. He married a thousand plus women in just a thousand plus weeks. That's a wedding a week. Yeah. I would call this an obsession. I don't think you have much time left for the kingdom. You might call it, as we've been researching lately through Anthony's work and learning, you might call it an addiction. Sounds to me like an an ancient version of a modern problem. Or should we say we have a modern version of an ancient problem? <laughs> and so, with just over a wedding a week, what are you doing but obsessing lustfully in your heart over foreign women? God came to him personally twice about this new behavior. Personally. Showed up and discussed this with him, and warned him about it, and Solomon rejected it twice. That's addiction. He rejected it against his heart's yearnings, against his desires of his mind. It reminds me of what Paul must have meant when he said, that which I will to do, I don't, and that which I will not to do, that I do. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how. I can imagine in that language, Solomon was wrestling with this thing. How could you not? Well, he had fallen into idolatry in at least two forms. First of all, he made alliances with the Gentile nations, and that was an idolization of power. And the way he did that was by intermarrying the king's daughters. That's where this princesses comes in as well. Now, if you're a king and you have a fallout with a neighbor, but the neighbor king is married to your daughter, are you going to go in and wipe out that, that uh, uh, sovereign uh, administration? 
No, you're going to want to at least spare one, but you're also going to have a voice in that palace. And so he was doing this with all the nations, and he was relying on his alliances with men, which God warned him not to do. God is sufficient. We only need one ally. Haven't you seen the, uh, the stickers and the t-shirts that say, God and me make a majority? That's the idea here. God says, rely on me alone. Don't run off to Egypt and rely on that as a crutch and don't run off and make alliances. Here's what's going to happen next. First of all, that's a lack of faith in my power. Second of all, alliance leads to assimilation. That is, you will start to learn those various cultures and you're going to start being allured by those various cultures. And when you bring those beautiful women into your palace, Solomon, they're going to woo you into trying things and woo you into getting their way about things, and they're going to want to worship their gods whom they left behind in their foreign countries. And you're going to get sucked into it with them. That's always been the warning for all Israelites, especially the kings, from the beginning of the Bible. That alliances lead to assimilation, leads to idolatry. You know how it started? It started with lust. Unchecked. Yes, it does destroy Anthony, you're right. Sooner or later, your sin finds you out. Solomon's attraction to foreign women led to his own personal idolatry. He actually practiced the worship of foreign gods. He did. It wasn't that he just allowed it. And this lust for these women led him to false gods, and the false gods kindled the wrath of the one true God, and he visited him in his wrath. He did all this, I want to remind you, he did all this while keeping one foot in the temple doors. He didn't destroy the temple. He didn't say, oh, I'm never going in there again. Much like the kings who followed him, they learned how to hold on to whatever gods that they wanted at the time. And rarely did they ever completely cast out Jehovah worship. Usually they offered him their sacrifice and paid him his homage while they went off and played with the other gods. Solomon tried to do that. He is perhaps the Old Testament's chief among sinners. But God calls him back as He does. A father who would have someone that he loved as a son would certainly make an effort to call him back. There are two common tests which he runs Solomon through that are common to all of us that are going to reveal what is in the basement of his heart. Those two tests are suffering and success. Extremes. They're extremes. Suffering and success. Now, he has had the success, and what is going to happen here is success and or adversity, which he will experience now with his enemies, will bring out what's in the basement. Do you want to know if you've got rats in your basement or mice or cockroaches? You don't just kind of walk down the creaky hallway and jiggle the door handle on the basement and slowly swing it open, creak, 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 and turn the light on and then walk down real slow in fear. Guess what you're going to see? Nothing, right? No. You come up and you grab the door, flip on the switch, and jump down in there, and what are you going to see? You're going to see stuff going everywhere, aren't you? Sin or uh, suffering and success that comes even suddenly is like flicking on a switch in the bottom of your heart. 
you can see what's in there. Now, God doesn't need to see what's in there. He already knows. He want, listen closely. He wants you to see what's in there. Are you suffering? He wants you to see what's really truly in your heart because it doesn't come out on your typical average good old day. He wants you to see it because He wants you to do something with it. He wants you to deal wisely with it. You're going to do one of two things. You're either going to reject it and run, or you're going to deal with it wisely and grow through it. And that is the purpose of God's testing us. He cheers for us. He wants us to pass. Satan would like to do these things. It might be the very same occurrence, but he might put these things in our life to tempt us to fall. He wants us to fail. God wants us to succeed. But we cannot know sometimes until we have it spilled out what is down inside. Prosperity is not idolatry. It only reveals whether there is idolatry. Many of us here are prosperous. Many are prosperous. What's in your heart? Prosperity should show it. It should show you where your allegiances are. You'll see it in your patterns of behavior. Sometimes we need each other to point those things out. Sometimes a husband, a wife, a friend, brother and sister in Christ. Oh, we don't like to hear it. We think it's rude, judgmental. Sometimes we need to point out that our priorities may not be in the right place. That's what family does for each other when we love each other. When we're suffering, we also see it. One of the things that I have learned from suffering is that not everybody is seeing the positive through it. And even as I went this past week and sat, uh, stood at the bedside of my uncle, Bud, who is 88 years old, has cancer. It's, it's growing rapidly through his body and his liver lungs down through his legs, shooting pain through his legs. I got to talk to the family about the fact that he humbly was calling out to God. Something he had never done to date. And in prayer, he called out to God and he said, I love you. I love my family. I want you to forgive me. <laughs> and I told them afterwards, I said, only suffering can do this. Don't say God is unmerciful. It was a beautiful moment, actually. And so, God uses these things to bring out the depths of our heart. And He uses the Gospel to heal what's in the depths of our heart. You know, Solomon came down to the last day, and you can put it on that last slide if you'd like, guys. He came down into his last days when he was Old, he fell into lust and, and an idolatry. So all I can say is when he's very old, <laughs> he reflects in the book of Ecclesiastes over his life and he says, I've had it all and I'll tell you about it, but I've got to give you this conclusion. God does all these things for a purpose. We read that in Ecclesiastes 3.14 in our Scripture reading. There's a reason. He's put eternity on our hearts. And my conclusion of the whole matter, the whole matter of life in my God-given wisdom coupled with my human experience, I'm going to tell you what matters. Fear the Lord and keep His commandments. This is man's all. We might say, this is what it's all about. This is the whole duty of man. We might say, this is what 
our whole purpose of life should be about every day. Solomon said, that's it. For God will bring every work into judgment, whether good or evil. So be ready to get the rats out of the basement. Let the Gospel of Christ give you the hope to reach for as life itself reveals the dirt and the rats that are down in your heart. The Gospel is the direction that we go toward. Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection gives me the positive aim that I'm shooting for in my life. God doesn't just say, stop it, stop sinning, you're evil, quit it. He says, reach for my Son and His wealth. Reach for my Son in His wisdom. Reach for my Son's kingdom. Reach for my Son's work and make it your work. Reach for Christ. Solomon fell down before God again in his life. I'm glad to say we need to be able to fall down before Almighty God and recognize that only wisdom from above is the wisdom that will tell us the truth about this life and guide us in the right way. Well, the song selection is tremendous. I'm sure this coming song also has meaning to do with our sermon. I thank you for that. And I pray that we'll sing this with all our heart, reflect inwardly, and reflect on the tests that God puts you through and where you're at and what you need to do in your life. If we can help you at all, though, please let us know today. Let's stand and sing.